Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. I'm Trainer Road and Ventum Bikes, Ivy Audrain. We have head coach Chad Timmerman. Hi. <laughs> Hi. And coach Jonathan Lee. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. We're here. We're stoked. We are going to talk maximum effort training, have some hot takes and more fun stuff. John has some... Mm-hmm information about a special podcast episode yeah. coming up uh cape epic it's geez it kicks off this weekend chad are you excited to to watch it's I'm excited. killer yeah. coverage man always so cool mm-hmm. uh yeah, we got some interesting stuff going on over there too which i have a feeling you're going to cover yeah uh so uh we have i have i recorded a special podcast episode yesterday morning with three of our employees that are doing the race they're from south africa they're way faster than, well, maybe not faster than Ivy. I don't know. Ivy's a pro, but way faster than Chad and I. Yes, no, they are. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Uh, it's <laughs> Tiffany Keith, uh, also Rousseau Becker. You may remember Rousseau from the last time that we did Cape Epic. He did it as well with us, which is just amazing. And then Keegan Bonsekonig, who also uh, has done the race. Uh, this will be his fourth time doing it and had some fantastic finishes. I want to say maybe even a fifth on a stage, um, which... And that's in the pro field, mind you, not like the, not the age group sort of stuff that we are racing. So super impressive. Anyways, <laughs> I recorded a special episode of the podcast and it's going to go live, uh, on Friday of this week. So then you can listen to it and have three athletes to follow through Cape Epic. In addition to obviously all the other athletes that are racing it, uh, it's going to be super cool. They're going for the African Jersey. And what that means is that if a team is composed of both athletes because Cape Epic is done as a team. That's one of the unique parts about it. And if both athletes are from Africa, the highest placing men's and women's teams get the African Jersey, which is really cool. And it's a big sought after thing, uh, from the athletes. Anyways, it's really cool. Uh, check it out. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be in the same podcast feed. So a little special bonus episode, uh, Chad, how many, how many like bike industry, companies can we think of that would have that many athletes competing at such a high level at such a difficult event? Like not many, yeah, right? Not many for sure. Um, and boy, I really want to do that race again someday. And Keegan basically works for us. I mean, effectively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should be on the payroll anyway. On honorary member of, of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be great. So, and there's a man, it's going to be an exciting race halfway through the race this year. They have like another, uh, prologue style effort, like a shorter TT brutal stages. We go over all that in the podcast. So check it out. It's going to be a fun special episode. Won't replace the normal ask a cycling coach podcast. Just a bonus for y'all. Um, and then also stay tuned to our, uh, Instagram channels and YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to YouTube, you need to, if you're watching right now, give it a thumbs up. Uh, that will help people find it. And, uh, we just, or we've been posting Ivy and Sarah and I are creating uh, video content for all of you. Go check it out. It's all about how to get faster. There's a fun one coming up on massage guns. I dug, I dug into the science on them, uh, and quite surprising some information there. So anyways, uh, check it all out. That's all I got. Ivy. I'm out. I'll, I'll just talk to Should you guys later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Bye. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, thanks so much to our athletes too, for submitting so many hot takes. It was wild. This is one of the best ones. I had too many to pick from, so we'll have some good. Where do they find here. that Ivy? Like First where do one. you usually post it for people that don't know? On our Instagram, on the trainer at Instagram, on my Instagram, Jonathan reposts, Chad pretends he doesn't have Instagram. <laughs> I'm sure He's you're the scrolling. I'm sure you're the kind of person the that like you know, he made so he made a tr- <laughs> yeah he makes an Instagram account to lurk and watch everybody else, but he he won't interact. He won't respond sure, to messages. Busted. Sure, yeah. 
seems right on brand. Yeah. Uh, all right. First hot take. Shaving one's legs is the worst tradition in cycling. Okay. Here at Trainer Red, we believe in science, and I consider myself to be somewhat of a scientist. So this off-season, <laughs> I stopped shaving my legs to see what all the hype is about because I'm tired of seeing these kinds of questions. So I thought I should, you know, conduct some science and not shave my legs and see if it's really that great, if it's better than shaving your legs. My take is no, it's way better to shave your legs. Um, there, there are other reasons in cycling why, why you mm. would, right? Yeah, for sure. Chad or, or in life. I'm not trying to, to yeah. <laughs> fur shame anyone here because it is absolutely furry. If you're a male, I mean, I, I, if I let my legs go, they get downright furry. It's pretty gross. I have to believe there's a narrow penalty there. Yeah. There's definitely, I know that the tried and true excuse is that it helps wounds heal more quickly. And that actually stands up because if you have to clean those wounds, if you have to remove bandages, reapply bandages, that that's going to be less irritating to the skin for sure. Um, I, I'm sure it does just as Nate has pointed out many times come down to vanity and that's okay. I, I'm totally, totally okay with that to the point where I think everyone should shave their legs all the time, regardless of whether or not they're cyclists. It's just, I'm sorry to say it, but I think it's gross. I, there's a reason women started shaving <laughs> legs in the first place, right? Because it's aesthetically more pleasing. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't cyclists do it as well? Considering <laughs> our legs are kind of our calling cards. Uh, I'm looking it up right now, uh, specialized wind tunnel for those that don't know this. I'm sure that it's probably something known by quite a few people that listen to this podcast, but, uh, shaving a particularly hairy subjects legs, uh, reduced drag by about 7% saving 15 Watts at the same speed in theory, That's enormous in theory that translates to a potential 79 second advantage over a 40 kilometer time trial. I believe so. It. Um, yeah, if you want speed, yeah, it's speed. If you want uh, quicker healing, yeah, it's quicker healing. If you just want to look good, sure, uh, whatever makes you feel good. If you want to keep your legs hairy, do that too. I don't, you know, whatever you want. By all means, primos. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> primos. Apart from the, <laughs> apart from the, the drag from air, that is when I decided that I that it was worth it to shave your legs. The first ride I did outside in Arizona with no leg warmers or anything you can feel flapping the hair in the flapping breeze. in the wind and i was like ick, <laughs> ick. Ick. it gave me the ick i don't I like can't it stand yeah. the feeling after not having you know uh after having shaved legs for so long anytime yeah. i let my leg hair start to grow out again i'm just like i feel terrible i can't wait to get rid of it so yeah. <laughs> that, but that's just me great glad yeah. we agree it's not motivating yeah. either when you look down and you got these hairy lumps of flesh trundling <laughs> along underneath it it's, it's not <laughs> It's not a good look. <laughs> not, not from my view. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. This next one's about altitude training. Closed door, closed windows. Would the lack of oxygen constitute altitude training? <laughs> Chad, what do you got? Well, you're going to have to do more than closed windows and closed <laughs> yeah. doors if you're going to trap oxygen or uh, keep it from penetrating the room. Um, and then it's, it's – first off, it's going to have to be a very tight room. And, and even then, the, the concentration of – Oxygen is the same. Oh boy, what am I getting at here? It, it's it, it all comes down to the the partial pressure of the oxygen, and mm -hmm. and you're, you're not going to affect that by simply closing up the room. Um, Ivy, you have a point that I'll actually try to expand on a little bit once I get my words back. Yeah. Oh sure. Um, I think this person is maybe thinking about athletes that use altitude tents, and just wondering if you were to seal yourself in, if it would have the same effect. Mm -hmm. But altitude tents are replacing some of the oxygen with nitrogen 
there's like a pump that does that. Um, so it's sealing the room alone isn't going to have that. And, same and two things go in there. First off, it is an airtight room. And secondly, they're diluting the partial pressure mm-hmm. of, of, of the gases. They're changing the pressures of the gases, increasing the nitrogen level, decreasing at the expense of a decreasing pressure of oxygen. So it's called nitrogen dilution, which frankly, I don't think makes much sense. It's the oxygen they're diluting. But in any case, that's the term for it. And it's one, one air in in place of another air. So it does have that effect. But again, airtight room. I have nothing to add here. Although other than this hot take is wrong. So, you know, <laughs> no. Yeah. Just no. And that's the joy in it. Many hot takes are just are yeah. just wrong. Uh, we get we got some more good ones of that later. All right. Um hot take saddle sore discomfort is ninety percent about poor posture or pelvic rotation. Strengthen your core. There could be something to this, but I think that things like your saddle width and the saddle tilt are maybe more significant. What do you think, John? Yeah, so I think that this probably applies to somebody, but not most people, if that makes sense. Like that, what this advice is like, I think that in most cases people aren't like, uh, cause I'm just visualizing like, oh, they're riding on a bike for five minutes and they get fatigued and it's just like, oh, they like fold like a noodle or something on their bike. And that, I don't see that being the problem. People still hold themselves on their bike. Uh, and I don't, if you have the bad, if you have the wrong saddle, okay, yeah, th- this one's terribly wrong. If you have the wrong saddle, I don't care how strong your core is, it's still just not going to be comfortable for you. So, and you know, a lot of it just has to do with shape. Each one of us have has a different shape pelvis and different shape soft tissue. And as a result, you might need a different shape saddle. Sorry to be a cold. I'm going to go another wind. direction so. and, and strongly disagree with Ooh. you. Uh, I do think Ivy's onto something with the, with the width and the and the shape or the tilt actually of the saddle, because uh, small miscalculations in either of those can actually carry a pretty weighty comp uh, effect. I've, I've sadly been been up close and personal with both of those things, but I do believe that a properly shaped block of wood would actually suffice in most cases if you know how to keep your <laughs> pelvis in a neutral a neutral position and keep yourself in a proper position on the bike. I mean, you got enough padding in your chamois. I've ridden some saddles that are probably not even as comfortable as a shaped block of wood, <laughs> and I made it work. So, And I'm not saying you're going to do the ride across America or something on a, on a bad-fitting saddle, but I am saying 40K TT, I've never ridden a comfortable saddle in one of those. <laughs> That's true. I, I've never positioned myself on, a, on the part of the saddle that actually bared the – the padding, I, and, and I do think when, when we start to fatigue and we start to slip, that pelvis starts to tip forward. All that pressure shifts more toward the pubic bone and off the, the ischium, and, and those are things that happen with fatigue. But I think a lot of people start in that position and don't even realize they're in that position. And once they come to terms with the fact that, oh, wow, I can position myself on really any saddle mm-hmm. and be more comfortable than I am right now on my $400 saddle that I've searched for long and hard – uh, I, I, I think you know, maybe 90% is a, is a high percentage, but I do think a very high percentage comes down to uh, uh, the majority of the percentage comes down to your pelvic positioning. Ivy. I, uh, speaking of saddles that are like blocks of wood, <laughs> they're out there. um, do you remember, do you remember the Sele Italia flight saddles that are carbon and just mm-hmm. clear coated? Yeah. Oh yeah, I totally do. Yeah. I rode that saddle for like three years and I loved yeah. it. And then I'm and then I matured. And realized that there are better saddles, but like, are you? Think, I, I'm just thinking that Chad, uh, we need you to affix a block of wood to your seat post instead of a saddle. And I want to report. I know. I'm, 
I recognize that I set myself up for that, but if someone will make me a saddle that is shaped like the saddle I normally ride with the right width, the right tilt, the right shape sure. out of a block of wood, I will. I yeah. will ride it. Sure. I'll ride it for a month on my trainer. Because the uh, shape is what outside. matters, you know, there. I, I, so ever since I've switched to a pro logo dimension saddle, I've never once when I'm on the rivet, just like, you know, because typically it's when you're really just hanging on and trying to hold on to a wheel or something and you're. And that's when you really start to fold forward and your pelvis starts, like Chad was saying. Uh, I've been in those situations every time, but that saddle, please don't ever stop making that saddle pro logo or else I will be Mm. very sad. Um, (laughs) But uh, ever since I've had that saddle, Chad, I've been in those situations countless times and my pelvis has never rotated forward. Hmm. So um, I don't think I did some sort of like I'm, I'm, I'm core man now, like some big strength routine or something like <laughs> when I got the saddle. So, but could it be that you found the position that's most comfortable for you and you naturally migrate to that without having to think about it? Yeah. I mean, it's not really f- folded forward too much though. You know, like I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm avoiding that folding forward that I'm sure somebody's relating to this, that when you have to go real hard and you're just, you know, boxed and just holding on for yeah, your life, I, you know? I believe that's a result of long-term proprioceptive feedback. You've found the position that feels right, and now you subconsciously get there. Could be. Yeah, could be. Could be. I, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I disagree with this original hot take, although, yes, being <laughs> strong is important. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Hot take, aero helmets in the summer kill your performance, change my mind. I think this is suggesting that how much energy your body uses to regulate your heat mm-hmm. Because of in the summer, because of an aero helmet, maybe outweighs the aero gains. It goes the other way too, right, think, Chad? Chad? In terms of like a governor, potential like a governor when your core temperature rises to a certain point too. Yeah, to the point where I think that how, how you combat body heat buildup is probably head of the list in terms oh. of uh, decrements and in, in what you can do in in hot hot weather. So I do think an aero helmet that doesn't breathe well, depending on the type of efforts you're doing. But I can't think of any effort where you would don an aero helmet where you aren't working steadily and hard for long periods of time. I mean, even if you're hiding in a criterium, it's still hot in the middle of the pack. Then you go do work and you get hotter and you can't cool off in the middle of the pack because the helmet's not vented well. And that heat just builds and builds and builds. And and just from right now, personal experience, just not having the fan on on the trainer, just trying to gain that additional heat shock benefit, trying to maximize the the. I don't know the the value of even my easier rides. It's amazing how much better I feel and how much more work I can do just when I flip the fan off oh, yeah. to the point where it, it's, it's woken me up to the fact that even on low intensity rides, it still plays a pretty big factor. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh lack of cooling will make anything harder. It doesn't matter the intensity. It'll make everything absolutely. hard, you know, every single thing that you do harder. This is why you see at Kona, you see a lot of athletes actually not using full aero TT helmets and you see them using, even though that's a long day, it's 112 miles and it's windy, it's a big aero penalty. Um, but it's worth it because of the heat and, and really what they're trying to avoid, it isn't the average temperature over the, over like the average head temperature or core temperature throughout the race It's they're trying to avoid a spike moment where their temperature truly gets very high. And if that happens, then it's very difficult to recover from that. And it can cause sort of lasting changes in terms of like, and when I say lasting, I mean for the rest of the race, uh, in terms of, uh, your body's stasis and how it's going to manage its efforts and, and its ability to perform thereafter. So that's why they, they it's really probably try somewhat to do it. akin. To, 
Mm-hmm. It's probably somewhat akin to operating at high altitude where you push mm-hmm. yourself into the red and getting back to a, a point of you know, stasis or as close to it as you're going to get is really, really difficult. There's a Christian Blumenfeld shared on, I can't remember, or maybe it's something on Instagram shared his, uh, he was where he was using a core body temp sensor, which uh, as mm-hmm. we know, like those things aren't perfect measurements of, of core body temperature and they kind of vary and a bit, but Regardless, the trend typically uh, over time, particularly over a marathon, uh, the trend that you can see, I do believe is is reliable enough to be meaningful. And when he came out of the energy lab on that course, which they run out of town, down the highway, a long way, down to the water, close to it, and in an area they call the energy lab, do a quick out and back there, then back up this hill. It's very hot there, but then they're on the highway and it's like a huge wide road, really hot. And his core temp, it looks like was ramped up, um, so that it was like 104, 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, by the time he got back up onto the highway and at that race, when he came across the line, he instantly fell over and they put him on a stretcher and had to take him, uh, to the hospital. So yeah, cause- in a situation like that, from the energy lab back to the start or the finish line in that mm-hmm. case, I, where would possibly be an opportunity for you to shed some of that, yeah. that weld up heat? And the worst part is in many cases, you have a bit of a tailwind there too when you're running back. Mm-hmm. So then it feels when even – You need the headwind most. Oh, yeah, it feels even more tough. And it's like uphill, just a slight drag constantly, big wide open highway, really tough. So, uh, But that's the running side. But that's why. They're just trying to avoid those moments like what he had, uh, which – um, I, you know, wouldn't be surprised if maybe he was the champion, if he didn't have that sort of heat event, you know, um, of course that's all part of it. It's not like there was an excuse there, uh, but I do want to counter this arrow helmets are way better than they used to be in terms of like not TT helmets, but arrow helmets. And they do a great job with airflow. Whereas originally when they first started coming out, you got nothing yeah. and Nada. yeah. And now it's really changed so that you, you do get a pretty darn good amount of airflow still with them. So it's not quite as uh, polarized, but I will always go yeah, toward, right. unless I'm doing something like a longer time trial or something else, I will always go toward a more um, ventilated helmet if I'm doing road racing or mountain biking. And then if I'm going towards something that's, uh, you know, like a, a triathlon or something, then yeah, I'm going to use a full TT helmet unless it's super hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like if it's a mass start event and it's hot, I wouldn't choose to do an aero helmet that sacrifices ventilation Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Okay. Let's get into some listener questions. Cass writes, I'm curious to hear some guidance on when and when to not increase the intensity of a workout using the plus minus percentage buttons. So Cass is referring to on the trainer app. Once you open your workout, it'll assign you power targets. And then once you're doing your workout, you can decide to either take a little off or increase the intensity if you want. It's pretty cool. So Cass says, I'm especially curious about when it's appropriate to increase intensity, i.e. I would assume I shouldn't be increasing intensity for rides that are specifically targeting recovery. But if I'm doing, oh gosh, I actually don't know how to say this. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have some wild names for workouts, huh? Um, That workout is two hours of VO2 intervals, and I feel like I could give a lot more. This is a good workout to increase the intensity using controls. How much is too much? Uh, John, what do you think about this one? Uh, yeah, I'm, I, and I'm curious, and, and for, f- please interrupt uh, both of you uh, as I go through this. But um, 
I think you really have to look at the intention of the day. Like you, you mentioned here in this case, probably not a good idea to do on recovery days. Absolutely. That is not the day to be ramping things up. If anything, that should be a day where you consider ramping things down. You'd like, right, Chad, like you should really be listening to your body. And if for some reason that relatively easy, uh, aerobic effort that you're doing on a recovery day feels hard, then that's a great time to turn it down. I mean, uh, that's, that's really, you want to make sure that the intention of the day is being accomplished, right, Chad? Yeah, a hundred percent. Recovery isn't necessarily achieved at a particular percentage of FTP. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if a recovery ride is specified at 55% of your FTP, but that feels hard, well, dial it down so it actually feels like recovery. And if you can't get it to that point, it's probably a good day to just skip the bike entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great advice. Now, looking the other way, I can think of very rarely, Chad, when the intention is to go as hard as you possibly can until you cannot pedal anymore, right? Like, yeah, that's, 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 that's a race. That's a bike race. I, I don't know that that has its place in training and in a workout like a shoes go that is two hours of VO two max work. And it's not obviously VO two the entire time. There's plenty, plenty of recovery in there. for two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. 110% plus. Yeah. But you, you have to, Balance that with what's to come after. And I think this is probably the the one point I would try to get across with something like this is on the day you feel like you can do it. Is it the best decision to do it? And, you know, trial and error, just uh, you can put yourself out there and see how you respond to something like that. But with a ride as long as this, with a level of intensity as high as that, the ramifications could be pretty big ones. They could be ones that cost you a couple of days of what could have been productive training. Mm-hmm. It's a tough one. You feel up to it, so why not go for it? But uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that anytime you're feeling that good, it's better to just dial it back. I, I, I don't know. There's, there's no firm answer on this, mm-hmm. but there is a potentially negative outcome if you really gut yourself in a workout. I want to talk about this like very thing of like all out efforts in training and all out training for a little bit because, uh, Ivy and, and, and Chad, actually, I remember uh, you pointing this out about Brandon, one of our employees, he's a Xterra world champion. He, um, he was training at the Olympic training center for years, uh, for triathlon. He's, he's a, a truly like a world-class athlete. Um, he's our COO and he isn't like a full-time athlete or anything these days. Uh, and, um, but he's still, give him like a month of training Remarkable. and he would, you know, he's just so good. Um, but anyways, you mentioned at one point with him that he doesn't on days where he feels like he could just smash it and he's hungry to smash it too. Cause we all feel that like you get to that final interval and we're feeling good and we want to do a hero poll. Right. But he doesn't do it. And his intention in not doing it was save bottling all that energy up that not only the physical energy, but also the psychological energy, right? Like, like the mental energy that he has that he could unleash. He bottles all that up and he saves it for when it matters on race day. And that that in and of itself is a very, like getting away from the physical side of things and the ramifications that could happen, that in and of itself is valuable if you're a racer, right, Chen? Yeah, that's that conversation in particular was the one that kind of shifted the tide for me in terms of thinking of the the philosophy between having your best performances during workouts so that race day is comparatively more manageable or tabling it a bit, chambering it a bit as as Brandon does so that he can have his best performances both physiologically and psychologically on race day. Because I hadn't really looked at it from that perspective. I was always of the belief that I want to make my training as hard as possible so that when it comes time to race, I know I can handle it Mm -hmm. rather than surprise myself with further capabilities on race day, something I've never exhibited during training. 
Yeah. Ivy, does that resonate with you being a pro athlete and have gone through, you've gone through a lot of different genres of racing, but also like a lot of phases of training of, of training and racing in your life too, where you've been balancing work or you've been just racing full time. Does this like going all out in training regularly or saving something? Do any of those relate to you? Oh, for sure. Um, especially when you have a heavy work life balance, feeling fresh on one day, <laughs> I don't, for me, shouldn't have, shouldn't stop at should today's workout be harder because if it did, it would have such a lasting effect on the workouts that follow. Um, so it is really hard to, when you're feeling good, decide to not do the extra set, not extend your workout. Um, but you have to, if you want to make long-term gains and feel good in those key workouts later. And this is actually a strength of adaptive training with your post workout surveys where you can let AT know that your workout felt easy. And if you don't, you know, add on a bunch of (laughs) a whole bunch of efforts that you shouldn't have that weren't part of the original workout and tell trainer road that your workout was very achievable and you want to do more then the next workouts that follow will be appropriately guided to be more difficult in a more meaningful way, in a more long lasting way in the scope of your fitness versus just this one isolated Mm -hmm. workout. So I know it's tempting for Cass Mm -hmm. to want to feel really good and do the hero pull at the end of the ride. But, um, in terms, (laughs) in terms of the full, your, your long-term goals, not the best strategy. This is, and there's a lot of nuance to how adaptive training works in that regard, right? Ivy, because some days are supposed to be easy. And when you enter easy, it's like, yeah, that's just right. So, and remember with surveys, we mention this all the time, but people still ask it on the forum. Like you're just supposed to answer how you felt. That's it. Like answer how the training felt and don't think anything else about it, about what it should have felt like. Just share how it felt. And if you turn it down or you turn it up, that doesn't change as well. Just share how it felt. Uh, it's really straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and adaptive training won't judge you because I've fallen yeah. into the trap of, like I said, for a long while mm-hmm. there, every, every workout was very hard. Uh-huh. It, it, Probably should have just been hard, but my fitness and my, <laughs> my refamiliarization with suffering on the bike, all those things made every workout very hard. And some of the times I felt like I was admitting to adaptive training that I, 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 I kind of suck right now. So, so bear with me, but it's, it's, it's not judging you. Be honest because your honesty will reward your, your later efforts. Yeah. It gives you the appropriate training, right? uh, the nice trajectory that you needed. So I kind of have like some, some, a protocol that I follow for this on trying to decide when I should go hard or not. Number one, like we mentioned in the beginning, does it satisfy the intention of the day? Is the day intended to be a hard day? Sure. So is my workout hard? And am I trying to make it extremely hard? I should check that, right? Like I should, I should be understanding that you can tell if the day is supposed to be hard or not based on, you can look at the workout description and goals. Just look at the workout profile. If it's a VO two max day, if it's a threshold day, it's going to be hard. Like, and you should expect that, right? Uh, if it's something that's a tempo day, it's an endurance day. Nah, it's not going to be that hard. If it's a sweet spot day, it's going to be moderately hard to hard. That's just how it goes. So keep that in mind. Are you satisfying that? And will this change that you're planning on doing or tempted to do? Will that change the intention of the day and, uh, or not and satisfy then, it? And, w- and with adaptive, adaptive training, it is effectively your coach and you do have to trust your coach at some point <clears throat> and trusting may mean doing a workout that feels a little bit easy on the day and then trusting that your coach is going to affect later workouts to to maximize what comes afterward based on what you just learned but by kind of flying in the face of that process and pushing yourself above and beyond what the workout's asking of you you're making the call for your coach for adaptive training and kind of taking some of the decision making out of 
probably more experienced, more knowledgeable hands. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great point, Chad. Uh, the next thing I think of is workout proximity. Like what is this one effort or what is this, you know, turning up the intensity going to do like Ivy said, and Chad said on the next workouts that I have scheduled. So I think about that. And then the next thing I think about is the training phase. Like, should I be erring on the side of freshness right now? Am I like getting into a specialty phase or am I in a build phase? That's a good point. Where I kind of want to tread lightly because like in a build phase, one thing you do one day, then you have three weeks of loading toward the end of that third week. You really regret going harder than you should have, you know, in the, in week one, uh, because that fatigue starts to mount up and it's intentional because we're straining the body, uh, giving it novel stimulus, and then it needs to recover from it. If you give it any extra, then it can be really difficult. So keep that in mind. And if you're in a specialty phase, I'm almost always of the opinion that you should not be doing this, hmm. uh, just because of the fact that it could be introducing more fatigue than is intended. That fatigue isn't going to do you any good. Likely you're not going to make massive gains in the, you know, the, the handful of weeks leading up to the event that you have. Instead, that's where all the work has been done beforehand. So instead of that, err on the side of freshness always. And also that's really when the psychological side of things comes into play bottle all that energy up. So then on race day, you can really use it. And going into that, if it's any sort of steady state effort, really any effort in cycling, they all require patience. You can't just go as hard as you can, unless it's like a, you know, a two to three minute hill climb TT. So bottle all that energy up until the end, because if you're pacing correctly, it should be really hard to hold on to at the end. And that energy could be everything that you need to be able to get across that line, that mental energy, just to hold uh, whatever that pace is. So that's kind of what, uh, I follow. So intention of the day, workout proximity. What are the workouts that are going to be coming up after this? What training phase am I in? And should I save this mental energy because am I going to need it in subsequent workouts or races? All of which could probably be looked at really simply as just keep the bigger picture in mind. It's not all about today's workout. It's about the collection of workouts that are going to get you to where you want to be. Amen. And take more pride in consistency than vanity numbers, right? Like, like you get a big old boost of power and that's like, sweet, I got a PR. Put more, uh, put more value on consistency in your training. And if you do that, that's going to give you, make you long-term fast instead of short-term fast, long-term slow. That's great advice. That's something that I would do, um, go way harder on a workout than I needed to when I wasn't riding consistently when I couldn't, oh, yeah. because I felt like today is the Gotta day I have up. to make this count. Right. <laughs> um, and that's not as meaningful as riding consistently and doing something that's more achievable long term. Oh, yeah. Great point. Good 100%. context. Yep. Yeah. Super sound advice, guys. We're doing great. <laughs> We're doing great. Podcast is over. Yes. <laughs> 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 All right. <clears throat> Let's get into some more hot takes. I think John maybe sent this one. I don't, I, it seems <laughs> it too actually was not me. Kids snack food. <laughs> Kids snack food is the best long ride food. This one's for I you. mean, honestly, it's pretty <laughs> tough to beat. This weekend, I had a. <clears throat> Uh, four hour. And by the way, I had somebody ask me like, what training plan are you doing? And I get this question all the time. Uh, never look at my training and try to figure out like what plan I'm following or anything else. I'm usually <laughs> testing something new or something else that may or may not make it to production. So, um, what you're seeing there is like, you're looking into the kitchen and, um, who knows what's going on back there. So they, you've, you've assumed my role. Yeah. It was the same thing for me five yeah. years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> don't, don't look at what I'm doing. Yeah. Cause it, it makes no sense at all. Nobody wants to see where the, you know, the, the kitchen, where the food came from, just <laughs> put it on the nice plate. So, um, but anyways, I had a four hour endurance ride this weekend and, uh, it just like 40 mile an hour winds 
30 mile an hour temps in rain and snow. So I was very much inside on that one. Uh, I did not use the outside workouts feature. So four hours inside is pretty tough. But the benefit of that meant that I could just have this like full on platter of my son's snack food. So I had like little, uh, little muffins, uh, from him. I had pop tarts. I had some, some fruit snacks. I had tons of stuff. It was fantastic. I mean, it's cheap. And if you look at a lot of the stuff, it's just really like it's sugar and salt and it's pretty basic. Mm -hmm. Some of it can be high in fat. So keep your eye out for that. And I'm not saying that for anything other than it could slow digestion and, you know, give you some gut distress. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to beat, man. Hard to beat. So, so what are we talking about here? I mean, what, what exactly is kids snack food? I mean, are, are we talking about baby food? Sort of oh, no. the, the goo in the packets? <laughs> well, no, that, that's what I thought of when I first saw it. Cause, cause that actually does work quite well. The, it does. Like pureed fruits. Yes. I mean, there's a, quite a little fiber in those, but there's also quite a lot of sugar, super easily digestible, pretty palatable. Really tasty. But that's not what we're talking. I think so. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, that, at least that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking of like pop tarts okay. and, you know, all the, all the other stuff that, you know, kids might snack on. But yeah, I mean, it's we good. said goldfish crackers in a prior episode, and that's not a thing outside of the U.S. And everyone, uh, uh, a bunch of <laughs> listeners like goldfish. You're eating what? fish. You can see goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, they do. Probably, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, a hot take confirmed myself. So, mm-hmm. it's not the most efficient though. Uh, that's for also, darn sure. In terms of like, you know, if you're if you're no. if you need race gas, it's it's okay, but it's not a. It's not the sort of stuff that's going to fuel a race effort for me. So, yeah, they're not actually super calorie dense, mm-hmm. right? I think of like Rice Krispie treats mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are a kid's snack food that are delicious, but they're huge. They take up so much space, and they're not actually <laughs> very calorie it dense. For like you know, <laughs> ten minutes. And, like I had a package of strawberry pop tarts, and they had the sprinkles. It was fantastic. Uh, sprinkles definitely helped, um, but. It was hard to get down. So two of those, uh, it was 390 calories for two of them. And they like one of like two come in a packet, right? Trying to get down two of those in an hour on the bike is pretty tough. And they're so dry too. And like I coughed one right. time and just crumbs on everywhere. And it was just, like, <laughs> so there are downsides <laughs> for sure. A gel is just so easy or drink mix is just so easy, you know, just goes right down. Mm-hmm. So yeah. All right. More nutrition hot takes. Salami sandwich cut into quarters is the best ride food under for under four hour rides. Heck a oh, cliff bar. Okay. So I got some, <laughs> no, I, this resonates with me. I get so tired of sweet food. I want something savory so badly. So anyways, I did some, uh, nutrition fact calculations nice. so that we could compare the two. Okay. So two slices of salami, 99 calories, seven grams of protein, eight grams of fat, and only half a gram of carbs. Two slices of bread, 160 calories, five grams of protein, zero grams of fat, and 20 grams of carbs. So the total for a salami sandwich is 259 calories, uh, 13 grams of protein, eight grams of fat, and 20.5 grams of carbs versus a cliff bar, 260 calories, 10 grams of protein, uh, six grams of fat, and 43 grams of carbs. So guys, considering those two, uh, which is better, salami sandwich I'm or quite impressed <laughs> by the fat and protein similarities and overall caloric similarities between them. I don't know how it adds up mm-hmm. in my mind because we have double the amount of carbs one to the other and then a similar mm-hmm. uh, protein and fat, um, just a little bit less. Yeah, but, I wasn't aware you know, Cliff Bars were so high in protein and fat. Is, that yeah. a, is this like a nut butter 
Yeah, Cliff bar. I don't know. They do have it's nuts in them. From a Google search a on lot the of internet, them, most of them have nuts and seeds, and nuts and seeds carry fat and protein. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and there is, you know, fat and fat in particular is much more calorically dense than than carbohydrates and that sort of stuff too. In most cases, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, it's not I, exactly quick quick fuel. I just get down to how I can actually stomach it, and me eating a salami sandwich while on the bike, and thinking of the heartburn <laughs> I would have and everything. Oh, it just. And the burps afterward, like, because you know that thing would make you burp and you'd taste like a salami sandwich mid effort <laughs> on a hot day. Oh, yeah. If, if anything, I would, I would uh, change that question to over four hour efforts, implying that I'm going to be going deadly slow for yeah. quite a long time, in which case, a bit of fat and a bit of protein in that, in that format, not, not in any John, way gotta- pre digested. Yeah. You got to train your gut more, eat more <laughs> mid-ride hot dogs. I'm telling you. Yeah. Okay. One that was argue. for a chocolate chip cliff okay. bar. That was for a chocolate chip cliff bar. So not a nut butter one or anything wow. like that. Okay. Interesting. Right. Yeah. I, I, under four mm-hmm. hours is an odd thing. I'm picturing this person doing like a, an hour long hard effort and just like with an, a <laughs> yeah. spicy Italian or something in a pocket. That's gross. Attack <laughs> off the front of a criterion. Cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> would be a good flex though, you know, and throw people off. So uh. yeah. All right. I'm team salami sandwich, but <laughs> sorry, Abby. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. More nutrition hot takes. The taste difference between Martin caffeine gels and non caffeine gels is like the difference between Coke and Pepsi. This is from Ian Lopez of San Ramon, the uh, Lifetime Grand Prix racer, somewhat local to us, NorCal, a young racer. And I'm just super excited to see Ian do really well uh, this year. He's a great athlete. So. Ian, thanks for submitting a hot take. I I strongly disagree with your hot take here. I find Pepsi and Coke quite similar in taste. I don't know. I don't really notice. Perhaps. What? (laughs) Isn't the official slogan of Pepsi? (laughs) I don't know. Like one of them tastes more like minty or like fake sugary to me. Pepsi does. Yeah. But it's like not a big deal. I thought the official slogan for Pepsi was... is Pepsi okay <laughs> when you ask for Coke? Like, they are not yeah. similar. I don't know because I find them quite similar. And boy, the difference between a caffeine gel and a non-caffeine gel, that is profound. Like uh, you is notice it, it. Is it really? Because I, 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 I never taste the difference between caffeinated and non-caffeinated really? versions of the same thing. I'm thinking of the maple syrup ones. I, I, mm. I've got – I never a slew of both of them and I interchange them and I, I've never noticed a difference in the taste. And it might be because of the maple syrup, such a strong flavor that overpowers it. It might be also because I just don't take in caffeine that much, right? Uh, I, I don't drink coffee, don't do anything. So as a result, hmm. when I taste caffeine, it's like, oh my gosh, the bitterness and the strength of the taste is, is really found. Hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know oh, caffeine right. had a taste. I'm going to have to look into that. Super strong. We don't, Chad, we drink three cups of coffee a day. How would we ever be able to tell the yeah, difference no, between the days? Yeah. <laughs> I never considered it. Yeah. Maybe the yeah. best way to do it is to take, um, take a bit of mint gum and then get some mint run gum and then try them back to back and see about the difference. Oh, you know what? I, yeah, I just popped a, a caffeine gum prior to this just so I could speak way too quickly. And it, uh, <laughs> I, I did taste it. Yeah. 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 It's that taste in, in, I notice it very, uh, and a big time notice. So, whereas Coke and huh. Pepsi to me is kind of like a nuanced thing. I'm probably, people are going to get so upset, but I don't know. It's not a big deal. There's no me. nuance there, brother. <laughs> it's just, it's all the same, man. It's soda. It's just like, whatever. Yeah. Sugar. Uh, Sounds good. You know? All right. 
uh, shopping list on your phone or, or on paper? Skip the fitness trackers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we did. I'm so right. sorry. Fitness trackers overestimate calories burned to make you feel better. Like vanity 100%. stuff. Is this true? Have you guys had experience with this? I've never I, done this. I do this feel like this is potentially a marketing driven aspect because they'd never underestimate it for certain. <laughs> I've never seen a, a caloric expenditure on there that made me think, no, I definitely burned more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I think that if it's rooted on heart rate, then it's a bit problematic to estimate caloric burn from heart rate. But a lot of them do that or they go off of like, basic uh like a basically like they have a table of basal metabolic rates based on your height and your weight and then they look at like you know also a table of data for activity data and then how much that would influence it and then they go from there so a lot of them are very inspecific so sorry to interrupt oh yeah yeah Yeah, but i'm hoping right right now people have already picked up on the fact that i mean you can put out 300 watts at 150 bpm or you could be someone who puts out 300 watts at 180 bpm so the the flaw with basing caloric expenditure on heart rate can be a a pretty big one substantial because uh, caloric burn is all about the work you're doing it's not about how hard it is for you it's about the work so yeah um i i never trust fit or calories from fitness trackers i just trust calories from, uh, the work that I do on the bike. And then other than that, I let the rest slide. And it's just like, all right, cool. You know, whatever. It was an active day. I should make sure I'm fueling myself. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I could see it. I think Chad, there's a, there's a plenty of room for nefarious activity there. Isn't there Chad? Um, there is, and I'm sure it's not intentional or, uh, uh meant to snow anyone into mm-hmm. missing out what's missing out on the, the actual information to be had. But, I, I I feel like it's pretty close to useless information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it is personally. All right. Cool. Okay. Now shopping list on your phone or on paper. <laughs> oh, phone. Uh, oh, it's like the most transformative Science thing is- in my life. It's been incredible. <laughs> like my, we have the same list. My wife and I, we just add to it as time goes on. Nothing ever slips by. There's no like paper list that gets lost. You don't have to bring something and, somehow stop your kid from falling out of the shopping cart and at the same time push a shopping cart and put things into the shopping cart and hold a list. It just makes it way easy. Hmm. So you can even mm-hmm. ask like uh, Siri to tell you what your shopping list is. Uh, I've done that before. Yeah. Really? I've done that before where I just have my uh, Air- AirPod- AirPods in while I'm shopping and then I'm able to do that. Sometimes it's tricky with kids. You're, you're that guy. So <laughs> yes, Chad, <laughs> I am. <laughs> Don't talk to me in the grocery store. <laughs> so yeah. Yep. Yes. I used to try to do it on paper and I would be in a rush and try to write stuff down and it would I would be like, get to the grocery store and is this Tylenol or turkey? Like I can't <laughs> read like I Tylenol don't know. Turkey. So now I just yell it into my phone yeah. and it writes it legibly. I for feel like me. Chad's an old school yeah, guy. Chad pa- <clears throat> I, I, I'm, I'm torn. Part of me wants to remain old school and the other part of me recognizes the benefits of technology. And I try to, I end up carrying both, quite honestly, because if I pin it on, on an actual piece of paper, inevitably I'll forget that piece of paper at some point, but I never forget my phone. <laughs> so, so I at least know I'll have it with me, but I've got, I mean, I could pull it out right now and bore everyone with it, but I, I have a list, a, a written list sitting right behind me, but I also have that same list completely 
within I think the notes application. So so I've I've got I'm basically running dual systems. So I, I'm not sure what I how I benefit <laughs> come from to that, but I can't seem to let go. I can't seem to let the physical lists go. It's just I mean what if what if my phone dies or something and then what do I do? I'm stranded. Except I'm not because I've got like ten other devices with the same list synced across them. So I don't know. I guess uh old school trying to be new school, but not not pulling off either. Yeah. Uh, there we go. All right. Good takes. All right, let's get into a listener question from Mark. Mark says, you can rephrase my question if it doesn't make sense. Let's say you do the workout Slide Mountain. It's a sweet spot 2.2. So Mark's referring to the workout level of um, the train road workout. Each one is scored appropriately depending upon the duration and intensity. So Slide Mountain is a sweet spot 2.2. And you decide to raise the intensity from 100% to 108%. For each interval, how does train road analyze that? The workout progression is still 2.2, but it's not the same workout. Or what if you add an extra entire interval, making it four instead of three intervals? Just wondering how AI understands that. Does it want you to progress faster or does it ignore the changes? Thanks for all your help. Longtime listener asking for a friend. <laughs> so John Chad, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is it's not trying to, the way the adaptive training responds to Changes like this is it's not trying to speed up your progression by suggesting adaptations, rather just recalibrate so you're progressing at an intensity that's more appropriately going to challenge you. So those changes you make during your workout are not ignored, and adaptive training is only going to get better and better at accounting for it as the developers keep rolling out new features and seeing how to understand those changes that are made during your workout. Is yeah, that correct? I was like, uh, yeah, so it's... Uh, once again, this is a great example of overthinking things. Uh, <laughs> and it, it happens all the time, particularly with survey responses. And, um, if in, it's not just with trainer road, if you use like a Garmin watch or anything else, sometimes it'll ask you after like my running activities, ask me how I felt that day. Um, it's best not to overthink it instead, just, uh, answer how it felt. Uh, because in the end, like what you're asking when you say, uh, the workout progression is still this, but it's just not the same workout. It understands that any additional work you do, it keeps track of that. And it understands that in the full context of what you're doing. So you don't have to worry about it. Um, uh, it's not going to just ignore because you changed it and it doesn't need some sort of template to hold to. Uh, it knows what you're doing. It knows what was scheduled and it can track, keep track of all that. And then just answer your survey based on how it felt. And it may indicate to it that like, Hey, this athlete can, uh, tolerate more, but right now in the training plan, we don't need to give them more. So as a result, it's not going to just constantly try to run you at your limits. Uh, kind of relating back to the question we had earlier, it's not effective to have you running at redline all the time. That's not how you adapt. Um, you know, right, Chad? I mean, that's from a coaching perspective, that would be disastrous to try to keep your athletes so that every day they're doing something that's that's pushing them on the limits. Mm -hmm. That <clears throat> basically doing too hard to workouts all the time or pushing yourself as hard as you can every workout doesn't make sense. It makes about as much sense as uh, trying to work out every single day and wondering why you've plateaued for the last four months. It, you just, you have to give your body an opportunity to adapt. And just because you're starting another workout, just because you feel up to the task of doing another high intensity or hard demanding workout doesn't mean your body has fully recovered from the preceding one. So there's still, there's still adaptation to be gained. And it's not to say you're impeding that, but, but you're not, you're not fully adapted. I mean, this is why we have 
recovery blocks at the or recovery days within a week, recovery blocks at the end of plans, because there's some adaptation that kind of gets stalled while other training is heaped on top of it. And then we take a longer extended break so that all of the adaptation can be more fully realized before we jump into the next block of training. Yeah, that's the that's the vision. Exactly right. It's great stuff. Thanks, guys. All right. More hot takes. Mm-hmm. A few more. Let's do it. Uh, road shoes and pedals in gravel racing. Why? They make gravel shoes that are just as stiff as road. Okay. I got an earful from Keegan and Tobinorm Blad about this. Uh, <laughs> because they both ride road shoes during gravel race and use adapters and things. It's wild. Okay. So they said that it's not a stiffness thing. Uh, stepping on a road cleat versus an off-road cleat makes you feel more connected or locked in with the larger platform. And then they said that it's also a weight thing. They prefer the lower weight to a road, uh, road shoe than a, than off-road shoe. Yeah. Do you guys have any Intel or input? Chad. Yeah. I, as much as I'd like to argue this, having two people who are at the coal face weigh in on it makes my argument seem pretty weak. Uh, I, all I would say is <laughs> maybe there's a slight aerodynamic benefit in that you don't have big tread underneath the shoe moving through the air. Um, and then as far as lightness, I, I've got some very light gravel shoes or those mm-hmm. S-Works specialized shoes. Those are extremely light. So I don't know if the the weight would be a huge concern, certainly not for me, but even for someone who is, uh, you know, on that fine line of as light as they can get trying to find these marginal weight differences elsewhere. Maybe that makes sense for them. Certainly not for me. And then the locked in aspect of it, I absolutely agree with. I mean, that, that there's, it's just a better feel being on a road, a road in a road shoe on a road pedal with a road cleat. It's also at that level. It's a bit of a flex too. Like you're trying to show to your competition mm. that like, <clears throat> I'm never coming out of these. I'm never coming out. I'm not walking. Like you're walking. That's embarrassing. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's, that's part of it too. There's a bit of psychological warfare that's going on there. Um, like Keegan rolling up to Leadville, anybody that's done Leadville knows that how much of a committing move it would be to run road shoes at Leadville with power line, <laughs> just absolutely brutal climb. That's a, that's a big flex there. Uh, you're committed. So, um, <clears throat> The the one thing that I would say with this is that uh, I don't believe weight matters as much as some people give it credence with shoes. Granted, if they're very heavy or something, yes. But when we're talking about the difference, like Chad said, between like a high-end Shimano or S-Works or high-end Giro mountain bike shoe, which are quite light, or particularly the Shimano and the uh, S-Works ones, and then going to a road shoe, the difference is pretty mini- uh, minimal. In running, I know that shoe weight is very closely paid attention to. And if you think about it, though, it's quite different in the sense that when you're doing the pedal stroke and you're going through, when your other foot is like lifting up, you're pushing down with that other foot and the cranks are connected to each other. And as a result, that foot's going to come up like it may not feel like it's being pushed up, but it's not just fully unassisted like it is in running where you're having to pick up each foot individually. So I think that weight is, even though it's the focal point that a lot of people say, I don't think it actually makes as much of a difference. Uh, the cleat, for example, that you might have in the pedal, um, some mountain bike pedals are extremely light, like Xpedo M force eight ties They're Uh, I used to run them. They're not very durable. I had a lot of issues with that. However, boy, were they light and, uh, the cleat is really small and I don't think the cleat weighs any different really between like a Shimano road cleat or anything that you would have. So uh, yeah, the, the one thing I would say is that I don't find that speed plays give me the same locked in feeling that I get from Shimano road pedals. 
So not all are created the same, maybe time and stuff. I, I don't know with time pedals or other similar ones like that, if they're similar to Shimano, but Shimano, I feel you feel like you have such a strong platform to pedal from really solid. And, uh, yeah, I just really don't feel that you rock more with uh, speed plays and then you have the adjustable float that you can add in too. And in most cases, most people are using those cause they can run more floats. So you're really not locked in. So I think in this case, I know that Tobin and um, Keegan are running at least, if not a Shimano SPD SL style pedal uh, and cleat, maybe like a time or something that's quite similar in, mm-hmm. in terms of overall. Design. Well, and if you if you look at the pro ranks uh, on the road side of things, yeah, I, it's not often. In fact, I can't think of the last time I saw a rider have to take a bike change due to a mechanical or, cr- or a crash. When they hop back on and they're getting their, their, their swanny or whoever jumps out of the car or maybe even a spectator giving them that little push as they, as they try to tow in to one-sided pedals with the big wide platforms just like we're describing. I can't think of the last time I saw a lollipop or really any dual-sided pedals. Every rider I see is riding a, a tow-in pedal and, and even – maybe that doesn't extend to criteriums where you have to be fast off the line and find the pedal right away. Mm-hmm. Like for, for certainly not for cyclocross but for road, I, I – I, I don't know who's riding speed play or dual sided pedals. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm using speed play still and I'm going to switch up. Um, I'd like to go over to the, I know big move. That's like big. That's like somebody changing a religion. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, but I'm I'm going to, I'm going (laughs) to switch over to Shimano style pedals or times. I I don't know which ones I'll try. Um, but that's going to be like a a fun experiment throughout this year to, to give it a shot. So I, I originally used the speed plays just out of it allowed way more adjustment and wiggle room for my problematic knees that I had, which really I learned was less about the knees and more about my hips in particular and, uh, and lack of strength and imbalances and mobility, range of motion, the whole thing. So, uh, I've detailed all of that and how I've addressed those things on the forum. You can look up knee injuries on the trainer road forum. So go check it out. Um, but uh, now I'm quite confident that I could switch over in the system and, and be just fine uh, with something else. So, yeah. Wow. Proud hey, of you. Good, good job. <laughs> thanks, Ivy. It's a big moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Good segue into this next hot take. Shoe fit is just as important as bike fit. Mm. I strongly I disagree with this oh, one. I emphatically uh, agree with this one. Ooh, go. Really? Yeah. Strong opinion. Wow. I guess my experience is um, pretty anecdotal because I have, I might have talked about this before, but winning San Rafael on borrowed equipment and shoes that were like four sizes too big and just lacing them up as tight (laughs) as they would get. And I'm like, yep, it works. It's fine. (laughs) um, But that was, I guess, just one ride. So it could be suggested that training long-term on a shoe that doesn't fit or doesn't work for you could be more problematic. Mm. What do you got, Chad? I've just grown increasingly picky with how well my shoes fit my feet because uh, on anything over maybe an hour, if you start to develop hot spots or any, any form of foot fatigue, if the arch starts to ache because you have too much support or not enough support, um, if you can't bind them right because, you know, a, a boa here and laces there or vice versa or you know, whatever configuration you have on your shoes isn't quite right. I find that consumes much more of my attention than if my saddle's a little out of place or my, my bars could even be slightly cockeyed. I could have like a two degree directional mis, mishap and, and not be able to straighten it out from, for whatever reason, a crash, whatever. 
and, and that weighs on my mind less than, than achy feet. And, and it only compounds over the course of a ride. I mean, I can get around most things on a bike as long as they're not extreme. I've taken smaller bikes and a bike change that, that has happened and had to make that work. But if I had to take smaller shoes, I, I'd probably just throw in the towel. That'd be my day. It's hard for me to say that it's just as important as bike fit because the range of adjustment that you can have on a bike can have you so far off. And I think the range of adjustment with a shoe insoles, shims and everything else is less likely to be as profound. However, the interesting thing is let's say your, your reach is a little too far because you've got too long of a stem or something, or your bar, you know, your bars are too high, something like that. That will not affect every single pedal stroke like a shoe would as, and I'm, I'm, so I'm very close to saying that, yes, it's just as important. Uh, it's extremely important to me. I've, uh, had Surefoot insoles, not super feet. Those are like the store-bought ones, but Surefoot is typically like a ski boot brand. Um, and I've gone up and taken my cycling shoes to the one up here at Olympic Valley. And then they go through and they, um, uh, and they create the insoles for me. Those tend to be heavy and a little big, uh, in terms of stack. And they always have to work really hard to get them low. And this year I switched over to doing the specialized custom insole process because our local shop here, Sierra bike supply, they have like a full retool setup now. Super cool. Um, and I did that and my goodness, the insoles are fantastic. Uh, and it's been really helpful, but actually this brings up a good point that I wanted to bring up kind of a hot take of my own, uh, people that think they need wide shoes, wide, uh, wide forefoot shoes specifically don't need wide forefoot shoes. They just need better arch, arch support. support. And I mm -hmm. thought for sure I needed like, I basically needed like a, the shape of a duck's bill or a duck's like a, a foot. I don't know. Do they have a foot paddle? I don't know what you call it for a duck. Um, anyways, <laughs> their lower limb, I thought that I needed that for my shoes and I had really high arches since I've started running this. Here's another thing. If you think that you have really high arches, another hot take is the fact that you don't have high arches. You just have weak feet. Um, and as I've ran, and I know that isn't the, the same thing across the board, but as I've run like now it's a year and a half of running consistently and my arch is nowhere near as high. I also don't need as much arch support. My foot's much stronger and it's stabilized my pedal stroke and my knees substantially because my feet being stronger. Um, so it's a, it's been a really helpful thing. So, uh, I do think it's very important to have that. Uh, and to have your, and it's also a lot cheaper in a lot of cases to just go and buy like a, a form, I think insole, they make really thin insoles that have pretty substantial arch support. If you're a high arch sort of person. And if you get that boy, that really helps with your knee hatcheting in or anything else, because you lack that support or the strength for your foot. Um, so I, I do think it's a huge deal and more people should pay more attention to it. Your shoes do matter and your insoles matter. And if you, <clears throat> if you happen to be a bit of a specialized fanboy or person, which I, I, I should count myself <laughs> just because I, sure. I, I like specialized products and, and I have a fair amount of them, but I, I'm pretty, uh, brand. What's the word I'm looking for? You're brand neutral. Like, like you're not you're, neutral. Yeah, yeah, there's no works. flags being flown at Chad's house. So no, yeah. no, but I have found that with the specialized shoes, they, they, I, I just like them for a number of reasons, but they offer three different sizes of inserts and they're, and they're not the cheapest things, but they're not terribly expensive, yeah. but a plus, a plus two, a plus three, mm -hmm. just for different arch fits. And I've experimented with those back and forth and it, it's enough freedom between 
between the set, there's just enough difference between each of them that, that you're never really verging on extremes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've settled on the medium ones just right, right there in the middle of the road and it's, it's squashed the problem. So it doesn't, I mean, custom insoles are wonderful. It's a nice thing if you, if you can afford that luxury, but if you can't, there are a lot of really effective, cheaper ways to go. Yes, absolutely. But it's super important. I, I think, um, probably overlooked by a lot of athletes. Hugely important. Uh huh. You can ruin my day. Okay. Yeah. Can I change my answer? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, four sizes too big. I don't know Let's if I think what on. I think no. anymore. No, that, that's post discussion. I have changed my durability mind. is super important too, though, and fle- like that sort of flexibility. Um, I'm envious of it. Ivy, you can eat mm. glizzies partway through a ride, and you can pull on shoes that are four sizes too yep. big, and you can still win. So it's pretty impressive. Head empty, do everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this falls under the category of hot takes that are just wrong. This is so cursed. <laughs> Bibs can usually last no. two trainer rides before needing and a wash. This is where Chad and I are going to disagree, I bet, again. Probably. Oh. I, just, I just I just say it depends. It depends. I mean, oh, no, if you're, Chad, no. no. Listen, if you're, if you're hopping on a trainer, you got the fan blasting, you're doing a 60% sort of effort for even an hour, and you're not sweating, Yeah. Absolutely. Oh. Just take them off, dangle them on the bike. They'll be ready for next time. <laughs> Gross. Dangle Less washing. And <laughs> we, we never discussed how, how detriment or damaging a washing machine can be on delicates like these. I mean, you can run That's it on the delicate point. cycle. You can use low temperature waters. But the more you wash them, the more quickly they wear out. So sure. if you can get a couple uses out of them, you're not putting on a wet or stinky chamois again. The thing barely changed in nature. So <laughs> pop it back on there. Get <laughs> over yourself and, and just get your workout done. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Chad, on... Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to change Ivy's yeah. mind on this one. <laughs> You're just speechless. <laughs> Chad, what's your mind on... Uh, or what's your thoughts on rubbing Purell all over the chamois uh, as just like a, you know, a protective measure in that case? Yeah, every time, of course. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't put anything on them. And, and if I do put chamois butter on them, which would be the one thing I'd put on them, I absolutely wash them after one ride. Oh, yeah, you got to that. But that's, that. that's not what I'm describing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Keegan just rubs Purell all over his chamois, and that's what he does. I've heard. I bet he went to I, only for bike packing. No, no, no. I bet he's normally. doing it at Cape Epic. I brought. I bet he brought one set of bibs, and he's just going to rub Purell all over those bibs every day. Yeah, that's, I've only got like thirty chamois. What do you expect me to do, Ivy? I got to get. I got to get a lot of miles. Yeah. Doesn't want to wash them more than once a year. I care so much more about my microbial health <laughs> than about the longevity yeah, of my that could be babes. argued that, that you're you're benefiting your microbial <laughs> system <laughs> by challenging oh my gosh, introducing no, no. <laughs> uh, i think this is along the lines of washing your body too much i mean there are things on your skin that ought to be there you don't need to scrub them off on a routine basis it is somewhat along those lines <laughs> I can't get in line. It's arguable anyway. I'm washing okay. every time. I can't get I can't get on board with it. I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. Not my deal. Uh, if you're <laughs> listening to this right now or watching it, you need to let us know how you feel about your bibs. Uh, go to the YouTube video and you can uh, add your comment there. So. I don't know how to move on. I can't. <laughs> you're t- you you want me to, you want me to really blow your mind? You're talking about two trainer rides. <laughs> oh. I can go much more. Oh, here. no, Chad. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. You could. John says, yeah. John says, I have been an amateur bike racer for several years. Moving on. Yes. Let's move on to John's John. question. Oh, God. John says, I have been an amateur bike racer for several years in multiple disciplines, road, cross, mountain bike. 
and I've always ridden slash trained by feel and raced in fitness. Because of this, I've plateaued in my career. I've never successfully made it past Cat 3. I had a few years of being fast at cross, but I, it took way too much work to stay at that level of fitness. Now I'm a bit older and I don't feel like racing much anymore, but I still want to maintain that fitness to allow me to drop in to group rides or epic adventures. However, I have a rebellious ADHD brain and struggle with and always have struggled with structured training. Seeing a schedule makes me anxious. And even if I have time and desire to train, I will need, I tend to ignore uh, a scheduled ride for something more fun that triggers my dopamine or matches my mood, i.e. hill repeats on a rest day because the sun is out or being, um, or a long challenging mountain bike ride on a zone two. Hero pole, John. Hero pole, John. I feel it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do not shy away from hard mental or physical work. I just need to do it on my schedule, which a lot of athletes do. This makes sense. I have a super flexible work schedule and support a family and friend group. So the problem is me. Do you have any advice for people like me who are willing to put in the work and have the ability and desire to get faster, but really struggle with creating or sticking to a training plan? Is there a way to maximize freeform style training? Thanks. Uh, there are many ways. John, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, good this question, one? John. Um, this isn't me, by the way. Um, uh, but <laughs> this is like literally why Train Now was created. Uh, so then this way, what you can do is you can just drop in and train when you feel like it. You don't have to have that level of, of commitment. I, uh, a lot of that resonates with me. I get like a mix of anxiety and then like really excited anticipation when I see my training plan all laid out. Um, so it's a bit of a blend. I don't know, perhaps, John, if there's a bit of a blend there for you. But I absolutely can't understand the weight of feeling like you have all these workouts laid on there. And it's like, oh, gosh, like that that weighs heavy on you because you're thinking about all the things that you need to do and you can't miss and it can it can be tough. So I think that it's yes. Uh, to answer your question, you need to find the way that allows you to have the most consistency with training. I think that's probably the best way to look at things is what method of training here, whether it's free form or following a training plan, whether it's low volume or high volume, and maybe with that low volume, we're mixing things in, whatever it is using train. Now you need to find what is going to allow you to be the most consistent. And that's, what's going to make you faster. Um, a little side note with this. It's funny. I think that in, uh, our minds as in humans minds in general, we are always searching for like the secret training plan or the secret workout. Like what's that one that's just really better than all the rest. And we also think in our minds like, well, you know, you have to be able to see like the outcomes of one training plan versus another, and it's got to be profoundly different. And the reality is it becomes the, the outcome of a training plan is much more tied in terms of like the fitness outcome to consistency in adhering to whatever it is and just consistency in general, rather than people like, you know, one plan versus another just has drastically different results. Um, Really, so much of what we're doing here at Trainer Road is focused on making it so that you can be more consistent with your training because that's what's going to make you faster. And uh, that doesn't mean we're throwing out physiology. That doesn't mean we're throwing out science. We're all operating on that, but we're finding ways to deliver training to you that makes it more consistent, achievable, and manageable. So and I think super important that, point to keep in mind. 
I, I think it's important to explain too that that consistency extends to recovery because we talk about being consistent with mm. your training and that could imply that you should tra- train every day, right? You should yeah, be on the bike sure, right. seven days a week because that's the highest level of consistency <laughs> you could possibly achieve. But that's that's obviously not the way it works. So consistency with your training and training does include proper recovery because otherwise it doesn't include adaptation. So train consistently, recover adequately and consistently. And yes, that consistency will will take you to potentially great heights, but at least maintain the height that, that you've achieved. And <clears throat> so much about this, John, is just speaking my language. As I get older, I become increasingly, as you put it, rebellious with a more ADHD brain. I do struggle. And and like Jonathan pointed out, when you see it all laid out in front of you, it's like getting a, a class syllabus at the start of a particularly daunting year of school. <laughs> and you see all the work that you're going to have to do. And it just piles up on you in that moment when you're obviously not going to do it tonight yeah. you're going to do it over the course of the semester so <laughs> so you look you have to look at it with those eyes you have to know that i'm going to chip at this and i'm going to chip consistently and over time all this work will get done and along the way there'll be some changes that that i'll, I'll insert because unlike a class syllabus i have some some power in the situation and i can affect my training and tweak it as as necessary but i get the idea of just wanting to train based on you know how you're feeling but if that consistency is there, and this is something I've described that this is what got me back on the bike this last time through, is just first off setting a consistent schedule. It didn't really matter what the workouts were. I was just carving out a particular time of day to be on the bike for a particular duration. I, over time, grew that duration because an hour seemed really daunting at first, but 30 minutes seemed very doable. And that consistency eventually folded into a bit more structure in my training. Now I have particular days where I'll work on VO2 max, particular days where I'll work on muscle muscle. Uh, endurance, et cetera, but I'm still playing it a bit fast and loose. And there is a, there's an upside to it in that it allows flexibility and, and maybe probably makes it more enjoyable for you, but there's a downside to it. And you almost use the two terms that we, and I'm assuming you're in North American because you're talking about being a cat three rider, but you preceded it with a plateaued in my quote career, never successfully making it past cat three. And our term is career cat three. Because so many riders ascend to the height of Cat 3, they get through 5, 4, maybe they do it rapidly, maybe it takes them a while. But once they hit that Cat 3, there's an enormous jump from 3 to 2. And the 2 jump can often lump you into the Pro 1-2 category. So you're riding with the best categorized riders, some who, who race professionally. And that leap is a massive one, which means that the change in training that's going to get you from a 3 to a 2 is a pretty big one. And I think a lot of people hit that wall, haven't done enough training to advance to Cat 3, which for some people really doesn't require a ton of training. I mean, you, you have to be diligent. You have to be consistent. Structure will, will benefit, but it's not absolutely necessary. And you eventually get there. But to move past that, I would argue that structure becomes increasingly necessary. If you're going to get really good, you're going to have to take it very seriously. And that's going to include certain sacrifices. And one of them may be, I can't play it fast and loose anymore. I've got to abide a particular schedule. I've got to trust my coach, trust a particular process rather than just winging it. Mm-hmm. I do want to advise of that that doesn't mean that John can't rearrange their workouts when they want to do a long, challenging mountain bike ride or they want to maximize good weather or something. Mm-hmm. This is normal 100%. for athletes of every level, not just cat threes that feel like they've plateaued. Professional athletes, too, feel like, wow, the weather's great today. I really want to do this long, hard workout today and get the most of the good weather. You can still restructure your training in that way. 
uh, but you might not be able to play it so fast and loose as Chad advised with what you're doing in terms of structure and trying to hit certain systems um, if you really want to progress and get faster. I think it might be helpful. This is a great covering just like the basis of, and kind of like the why behind a lot of stuff for athletes. Um, I want to cover the risks of not following a plan and outline those clearly. So then people can make a better and more informed decision because it, it, and I want to be clear when I'm trying not, I'm not trying to push everybody into a plan at all. Instead, I'm outlining the risks so then we can be realistic about them and recognize when eh, those risks don't matter to me and I don't need to follow a plan. Instead, I'll follow something like I'll use train now to give me workouts. So when I feel like, you know, when sun's shining and I'll make some hay and, uh, we'll do that and then we can just ride or do whatever else I need to when I don't need to it. So anyways, risks of not following a plan, uh, lack of control periodization, I think is probably one of the biggest, uh, risks that you focus, that you face there. Um, periodizing a training plan is, is it isn't enormously complex in terms of what we're talking about here. We're making sure that you're building aerobic base early on. And then we're looking at making sure that we're driving up your fitness level strategically based on the demands of whatever event you have. And then afterward, we're making sure that you aren't coming in too cooked and instead you're specializing your fitness for the demands of race day. Within that, we're also talking about periodization on a smaller scale of making sure that you're loading fitness and deloading or I should say loading strain and deloading strain at the appropriate times in order to get faster. So while the principles aren't very complex, it's extremely complicated to do that rationally when you are the athlete going through and just planning as you go, right? It's like so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I want to clarify too that this is important, not just if you're going towards a big race goal or an event goal, right? Like you still need to follow proper progressions and incorporate rest and hit certain systems in order to get faster. Even if you're not trying yes, to race, even if you're just trying to enjoy the bike more and have more fitness to make that happen, uh, whatever it is, this does matter. And what I've found is that I'm really bad at, at properly periodizing my training on the different scales that need to happen when it's just me, because I'm ambitious and I'm excited or I'm not excited and I'm demotivated. And as a result, what happens is that it just ends up being a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything and a, not a lot of the stuff that maybe I need in the right times, whether that's rest or whether it's work. And it ends up making it so that I'm kind of just stuck in a mediocre middle ground in terms of my fulfilling whatever potential I have with the training time that I have at my at my disposal. So that's one thing that you face as a risk for that. Granted, if we're stepping back and looking at not training versus just, you know, picking some workouts and doing them with train now, then you're going to be miles ahead with train now, uh, compared to not doing anything. Um, we mentioned this kind of within that, but, uh, and Ivy mentioned the word progression, but lack of a training progression, like, uh, so if you're using train now, then it's going to make sure that the workouts you get are appropriate for your abilities in those zones. And that's a really helpful thing. But if you're not using train now, like, uh, it's really tricky to look at a workout and to just be like, yeah, I can do that one today. And that's appropriate for me. My eyes are always bigger than my stomach, or I should say smaller sometimes too. And I don't, it's hard to pick the right workout. So making sure that you're getting ones that are appropriate for your ability levels is another thing that's tricky without it. And then lack of controlled training stress. This is so easy to overdo it. Uh, I remember <laughs> like, uh, three years ago I was, uh, just, training was going great and I was getting fast and I did the local drop ride. And then after that, I just felt so good after the drop ride and so satisfied and loved the bike. And it was good weather that I just, you know, I tacked on some more when I came home and then I looked and I was like, Oh my gosh, I had a 325 TSS day. Like 
uh, that was like, and then I looked and I'm like, that's, that's a huge bump in my training. You know, like this is almost double what I've been doing recently with my training. This is going to be rough. And sure enough, over the, like the next month and a half, uh, it didn't hit me initially. But then after that, I was just handicapped in terms of my ability to be able to perform and progress. So it's really easy to overdo it when you aren't following a plan. All of that said, it's not if you have an event or not, I think, in terms of what qualifies, whether you should follow it or not. It's really based on what's most motivating to you and what allows you to be the most consistent. And if that means just not having a plan and using train now, then that is what you need to do. Uh, it's all based on consistency in my mind and what's most motivating. So um, that's what I would say. Super sound advice. Chad, anything else? Um, I don't think so. I, I would basically just be reiterating things I've already said just because it's a, a fun point, but I think we've driven it home pretty well. Cool. Yeah. Great question. Thanks guys. All right. A few more hot takes. Uh, the best two bike stable for all disciplines and activities is one, a full suspension mountain bike and two, a carbon gravel bike. I think this depends a lot upon the gearing that you have on your gravel bike. Um, if you have like a one by setup with a smaller chain ring in the front, like a 36 or a 38, it can be hard mm -hmm. to really, once you try to treat it as a road bike, um, and you can put on, you know, slicks, road tires, but still, if you don't have a broad enough, uh, gear range and have enough difficult gears, it can be actually hard to do some of that hard training and speed work. Mm -hmm. Um, if you try to treat it as a road bike, what do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I think or to race it as a road bike. I mean, you couldn't, with that, that gearing would Impossible. prevent the same or yeah, present the same challenges, but would you rather have a road bike to ride on gravel roads? Try to mm. you know, stuff in some maybe 26, <laughs> 28, 28s, yeah. maybe now they, most and of them are allowing that even work to with road gearing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think this is on the nose for, for the type of riding I do and for where I live, a full suspension mountain bike and a gravel bike. That's perfect. If, if I had to whittle it down, my, my ever growing stable of bikes, if I had to whittle it down to just two bikes, these, these would be the bikes. Yeah, uh, I agree. I'd have a 120 mil full suspension mountain bike, uh, that I could lock out or something. So then it can be plenty efficient if I need. And then I would have this gravel bike and I'd be great point on the gearing. If this was my mm -hmm. stable, I would have a 50 tooth up front and then I would have a 10 52 in the rear. Um, and then that would get Ooh, me through most with the SRAM setup. Like that's the one by in the front and then yeah. going there is, it's kind of a wild, like, um, kind of a wild advantage that SRAM riders have. I feel like with the drivetrain options right now, it's uh, pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. Um, the that, Hey, Jonathan, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you, if you'll weigh in on the 10 tooth cog, because I've heard, uh, what's his name? Josh from, well, previously from zip and now from mm. what's his last name? Silka, I think. I, is he at? Yeah. yeah. But what's. Josh. Anyway, it, it's escaping me right now, but he's on the Marginal Gains podcast quite often. Mm -hmm. And he is not a big fan of that 10 tooth cog. Yeah, I think it, that I mean, it has to be. It's, it, it's pretty, uh, it causes a lot of friction as I understand it because of the fact that it's, it's such a to. tight little bend. And the more the chain has to bend, mm -hmm. the more friction is created. With a big cross chaining effect too. Uh, yeah, it could be. Um, if you think about it though, in reality, the, um, where the 1050 or 1052 cassette expands in terms of lateral distance, it's really going up toward the 52. There's more cross training there okay. because the cassette Got is it. so big. It kind of domes 
uh, inboard, if that makes sense, uh, toward the center of the hub a bit more. Perfectly. But I think that the main issue with it, yeah, is the fact that it's, it's such a tiny little bend. Um, uh-huh. And ideally what you're doing is you're optimizing your chain ring size. So then that way you can spend the most amount of time in the center of your cassette. That's what they always say. So, but I wouldn't, I would, you know, if this is the case, I'm making a whole lot of other compromises too. I'm making aerodynamic compromises. Mm. I'm making handling compromises. Cause I don't, uh, I notice a substantial difference in how like, uh, uh, from the same brand, you might have a road bike and their cross bike or their gravel bike and push those through a turn in a crit scenario. And boy, you will notice a substantial difference. Um, just like if you were to try to bring it through like a bumpy off-road corner on that road bike, you would notice a substantial difference too in a negative one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like, I hate the way that gravel bikes and, and cross bikes corner on in like a race scenario on pavement. So that would be uh, you know, they're, they're intentionally flexy and they do that because they give you a way better ride when the road is rough and you really want a bike that is going to hold a straight line and be strong through a turn when you're on the road. So honestly, for me though, uh, for where I live, my perfect two bike quiver is a road bike and then having the full suspension mountain bike. And it's because I just don't ride gravel. Um, there just, there isn't like the gravel roads here are better on a mountain bike, uh, where we're at. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would buy. Yeah, I can speak to that. Remember when I did a cross bike ride? <laughs> oh my gosh. With you and you're on yeah. the XC bike? I you know, spotted this road on Google Maps and thought it was going to be great. It was uh, kind of rough. Sorry, Ivy. Yeah. It was great. And uh, She's riding great. rock gardens good. and like World Cup style like root drops and stuff on their gravel bike. Super <laughs> impressive. So, yeah. Uh, thanks. All right. Uh, hot take marginal gains are killing the sport of gravel. Spirit. Spirit, sorry, spirit of gravel. Mm. Uh, I disagree with this. I think it's making the spirit of gravel. Ooh, what's the spirit of gravel then, Ivy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Marshall okay. Gaines, uh, aero, bar, aero bars and hydration yeah. packs. Yeah. And <laughs> I, yeah. I, uh, I don't know. The spirit of gravel doesn't exist to me. I don't know. Uh, I think it's uh, it was a conjuring up. Oh, boy. This is, do I want to say this? Uh, careful I shouldn't say it um, but anyways I just think that the spirit of gravel I don't know I believe that it's kind of like a figurehead for something that probably doesn't exist and doesn't need to exist instead it's just bike racing and people are having fun with bike racing and it's a cool genre mm-hmm. of bike racing um, yeah and marginal gains absolutely don't kill that uh if it kills it for you, then don't do it. If it kills your enthusiasm for gravel, which I think is akin to the spirit of gravel for a lot of people, then don't do it. Um, and if, and if it, somebody else does it and it kills it for you, you need to work on worrying about yourself instead of other people. So, um, you know, just let them do what they need to do. Based. (laughs) Sorry. Just, you know, based, based John has spoken. Can't let that stuff bother you, you know, whatever. Mm hmm. What do you think, Chad? Um, I think the spirit of gravel or the topic of the spirit of gravel is dead to me and I'm, I'm over it. So I'm not going to touch that. Uh, marginal gains. Well, that's a shame because we get a lot of I know, uh, I know we do. submissions. Way too many. <laughs> my God. The, the, but the marginal gains, I'd kind of like to clarify my stance on marginal gains because I know we talked about it a long time ago and I probably came across as poo-pooing the idea when in fact I was – Simply talking about prioritization, mm. you can't prioritize marginal gains above the low hanging fruit, the, the things that are necessary, the fitness, the, the consistency, yes. the, the training plans, the progression recovery, all the things. But marginal gains are, I mean, if it's on the table, why wouldn't you 
take advantage of it. Uh-huh. If it's something that can help you go faster, absolutely. And when it comes to a point where the difference between a podium placing and a being outside of the top 20 can come down to marginal differences, then absolutely you'd, you'd be a fool not to pursue marginal gains. So I feel they're, they're incredibly important if they sour the, your, your view on, you know, whatever discipline of cycling it is that, that you're interested in. Well, yeah, clearly they don't have a place. So don't worry about that stuff. Let other people worry about it. Ride your bike and enjoy yourself. But I think it's, it's a heck of a lot of fun to pursue those marginal gains just from a, a scientific mm-hmm. uh, approach, but also because it's, it's free speed. I mean, why would you leave that on the table? Mm-hmm. I think, oh. and they don't have to be, oh, no, sorry, please sorry, you. Uh, they don't have to be absolute. You don't have to decide that you are a marginal gains person and every training ride and race you do has to be so incrementally. How can I get a little bit better at this? How can mm-hmm. I get a little bit faster? Um, like, like my approach at, BWR, um, Belgium off ride in Scottsdale. Um, there are some races that I take very seriously and I think about every single marginal gain to try to perform well. And then there was this one where I literally packed and stashed a musette bag to sit down at an aid station and take off all of my cold leather clothes (laughs) that I didn't really need necessarily, but I wanted to be comfortable and at, you know, six in the morning and have leg warmers and jacket and big gloves and, you know, you don't have to be the kind of athlete that decides I'm this mm. kind of athlete that searches mm. for every half a percentage and I have to apply this all the time. You can free yourself from that. I think what you're describing and, is the perfect antidote to anyone who finds themselves taking marginal gains too seriously. Uh-huh. Just every once in a while, shrug it uh-huh. off and let yourself just enjoy bike riding for bike riding. Oh, great point. Or if it feels like a burden, that's if it feels like a burden and then that it's outweighing the the joy or the goal of what you're trying the to achieve in your rider race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the spirit of simplicity, the spirit of enjoyment, the spirit of adventure, all those things. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of marginal gains, can I pose another hot take, uh, Ivy? So uh, this is my submission. Yes. Hopefully, it gets included. Um, uh, so my <laughs> like is, your odds. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Uh, so during recovery weeks, Chad and I were talking about this before we went on air. Went on air during recovery weeks. People pay way too much attention to nutrition changes that need to happen during a recovery week. And I say need to happen in their own mind instead of more meaningful things. Chad mentioned something. It's so important. Don't let the pursuit of marginal gains blind you to the opportunity and relative ease at which you can get substantial gains, not marginal gains. And chances are they're low hanging fruit. And the most like so many of you write in think asking how do I alter my nutrition during a rest week? And in most cases it's driven toward trying to find the line of deprivation and just sit just North of that line. You know what I mean? Like, like how can I deprive myself the most I can possibly do without causing harm? Because then that gives me a chance for the seven day period that I can substantially in my mind, hope that I can shift my body composition. And it's just like barking up the wrong tree and it's chasing a marginal gain that is not, that is, has extremely high asymmetric risk in the sense of the potential for a positive outcome is very low. And also that positive outcome is going to have very little benefit. The potential for a negative outcome is substantially high and it can have a profound negative impact on you. So in those situations, I see so many of you doing that when really just take naps, man, like, uh, look at your recovery week and be like, I'm training six hours less this week. How can I sleep for six more hours? If that's all you did, you would be so much further ahead when you started the next week of training. Just sleep more. Like it's it's a small thing and it's probably something you can do because you have more time. 
Maybe you can sleep in instead of like doing that workout for a little bit. Maybe you can alter even your week. So you just sleep in in general a bit more that week or go to bed earlier. All those things would help you so much more than trying to think of like, maybe if I don't put mayonnaise on my sandwich, I'll get faster. You know, like it's not worth it. So John and Chad, we should make a period, like a food triangle of the low hanging fruit of things that are Mm -hmm. important that will make you faster, that are easy. And then the ones that you shouldn't worry about or that are the top putting mayonnaise on your sandwich. Sick the marketing team on that because at the bottom of that pyramid, you'd have nutrition because nutrition is not marginal, but micromanaging your nutritional makes it marginal. (laughs) You're you're becoming, yeah, exactly. You're jumping right to the top of the pyramid, uh-huh. trying to figure out these little tiny tweaks that mm-hmm. might make a difference when back down to the bottom of that pyramid, sleep is is amongst it. And if you can, like Jonathan said, just go to bed a half hour earlier every day that week or three or four of the days that week. That That's going to have a greater impact than you know leaving, leaving mayo off your sandwich <laughs> or starving yourself with, over the course of your recovery week. Yeah. Right. Or like our discussion today, consistent writing would be at the at near the base also as a low hanging fruit versus something like worrying about the changing your workout by 2% in this interval pyramid of gains marginal to uh, substantial. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I like it. It's good. (laughs) That's great. Okay. This next one is definitely for you too. This is over my head. I have no bandwidth to follow men's world tour cycling right now. So the USA gets a grin. Good. It should, it should apply to women's racing too. Oh, this question, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The USA gets a grand tour or a monument podium in the next 12 months. 100%. Oh, yeah. I I think we've got probably five riders on the men's side that can do it and maybe not as many, maybe three. And and I'm not as uh, knowledgeable on the women's side of things. I have my my favorite riders, but I don't know how deep our American team goes on the women's side, I'll be honest. Uh, on the men's side, I, I find myself forgetting riders. I forgot Larry, Larry Warboss still rides for us. I, I forgot he's on <laughs> is he AG2R. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's still yeah. out there hitting it. Yeah. And he's been, you know, relegated, not relegated, but assigned to a more worker type role, but he's still out there. So, so there are um, riders that escape my attention doesn't mean they're any less important or any less capable of achieving a grand tour podium or a monument podium. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a couple hitters out there on both sides of it, men's and women's side who can do it. And I mean, we're watching Nielsen, Nielsen palace and our own Mateo, Mateo Jorgensen and Quinn Simmons. And then if Kristen Faulkner can stop breaking the rules, I, I believe these people can do <laughs> some very impressive things. Yeah. So yeah, Magnus Sheffield is, is absolutely reasonable. Another one oh, that could yes. absolutely get about. a monument podium. I, I feel, um, mm-hmm. Sep. Sep. Yep. Um, yep. Which We've got a broad range of talent. I think we have a greater chance of getting a monument podium on the men's side than we do a grand tour. On the women's side, I, I, I'd probably, probably agree with that too. Um, and most of that is because if you look at the role of our American athletes, in most cases, they're in the roles that will allow them to target a monument for a win and then be a worker bee for the uh, for the grand tours in, in most cases, I'm not saying that like, you know, if all things were equal that, you know, Americans would be filling up the podium or something. I don't want to come across as that stereotypical, <laughs> stereotypical, egotistical American, but, um, it's, we do have a growing talent and with how Mateo Jorgensen is riding these stage races early this season, I'm just profoundly impressed exciting. with how mm-hmm. he's managing a multi-day race. Um, seeing Kristen Faulkner and how she rode, Strade, like she's yes. So 
I do think this happens when you spread it across men's and women's. I do think that it happens in one way or another. I don't think we're going to have a men or a male on the podium of the Tour de France, though. Um, I don't think that'll happen. Maybe not any, excuse me, maybe not any of the grand tours within 12 months. I think the monument one within 12 months is absolutely achievable. Yeah. But then uh, I say that and watching Mateo, uh, I don't know. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's super exciting. Cool. All right. Hot take racing when it's cold is harder than racing when it's hot. This one hits home for me because I, uh, sweat a ton. And so when I do a ride in the cold, I have extra gloves. Uh, sometimes <laughs> if I have a big frame bag or a handlebar bag, like an extra base layer, honestly, because it gets so sweaty. And that's when I get really, that's when I really start to hurt is when I'm like wet and it's also cold, um, that I just get miserable. So racing, obviously you can't do any of those things and you're usually going pretty hard. So then I'm extra sweaty, can't change my gloves or my clothes or anything, uh, and you just have to deal with it and keep on racing. And it's so hard for me to regulate my body temperature when I'm in that mm-hmm. setting. Can you guys speak to that? I know my power is more affected by the heat than it is the cold. Um, for me personally. And so, uh, but it's affecting everybody in most cases, somewhat similarly, you know, I know some riders are better in the heat than others. Uh, I find it harder to ride in the cold from with motivation personally. Uh, my performance may suffer more in the heat, but the motivation side of things with the cold is very difficult. Uh, I, this winter has been brutal here and I have not ridden outside except for in thermal tights and thermal jacket and thermal everything. And like still soaked and blowing wind and 30 degrees and riding through ice patches and snow. And like, it's been very hard. So, uh, yeah, uh, for me, it's way harder riding in the cold than it is the heat. Way harder, just because the motivation side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I, I this is a would you rather that I can't land on one side or the other. <laughs> I really can't because I, I keep coming up against what's challenging about racing in the cold, what's challenging about racing in the heat, and each one kind of washes out the the corresponding other to the point where I, I just can't pick. There is no lesser of these two evils. They're both miserable and. Uh, I'd take either one. I couldn't, couldn't go out there and tell you I'd prefer to be cold today than, than hot or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to sit the fence on that one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. They both That's suck. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they both suck. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, everyone listening, thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so and give us five stars. Thumbs helps a up. Ton. We need it. Uh, we need we should re- get a rush this week. Helps a bunch. If you're all listening to this, that would be so helpful. Like if um, anybody listening that has not yet reviewed on whatever podcast app you're using, particularly on Spotify, actually, even if you don't listen on Spotify, go over there and rate us because that's where the most people are finding the most podcasts right now. And the most people are going to be searching for a cycling podcast. And the more you rate it this week, the more likely it's going to pop up in search results for people this week. So please go do that. That would be hugely helpful. And um, we don't charge anything for this podcast and we don't bombard you with ads. This is the only ad we ask for. So, mm-hmm. And if you want to submit a question for us to discuss uh, next week and beyond, go to trainerred.com slash podcast. And John reads every yes. single <laughs> submission, yes, every single one. <laughs> yep. It's a lot. <laughs> and I appreciate it. Keep doing it. Next week, we're going to have Hannah on, um, Hannah Otto. It's going to be great. Uh, Chad, Hannah, and I. It's going to be a trio. 
Uh, it's going to be a good episode. And then uh, stay tuned for that special episode, right, Ivy, for Cape Epic. Oh, Cape Epic. Yeah. It's going to be wait. great. And we'll do some sort Thanks of update, for- right, Chad? Yeah. Like, like we'll pre-record that episode next week. It won't be live on Thursday, so it might be a little bit behind. But we'll at least, I'm sure, talk mm-hmm. briefly about mm-hmm. what our uh, awesome employees are doing there at Cape Epic. So How it's unfolding. Yeah. It'll yeah. be great. Chad's going to start posting on his Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold your breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for joining us, y'all. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. See you.